0: Welcome to Cascade Talks.
1: Kroisoi Cascade Talks. Podcast Sidon Chavot akin archilio or emchilde arav ak arloisi en a mais o koval kemde tasal plant.
0: A podcast that discusses and explores the latest research and innovation in the field of children's social care.
1: My name is Sarah Faraher. I am a social work professional doctorate student at Cardiff University and an experienced senior leader in adult social care and across adult social care and health. And I'm absolutely delighted today to be
0: doing a podcast with Lynn Romeo,
1: Grief Social Worker for England. Welcome, Lynn.
0: Thank you. And uh, yes, my name is Lynne and I'm Chief Social Worker for England in the Department of Health and Social Care. And um, I'm, it's really great to be able to have this discussion with you, Sarah, uh, about strengths-based practice. Absolutely. So
1: to start with, Lynn, um, do you want to tell us a bit about why you promote and support the strength-based approach?
0: Yes, um, interestingly, I feel it's not—it's nothing new. It's like I trained a long time ago, over 40 years ago, but that was the very heart of what social work practice was. Uh, it was really kind of being where the person is, the client, as we call them in those days, really understanding who they were, what was important to them, and working alongside them. A real focus on relationship building, empathy, the conversation that would help you really try and be in their shoes as much as you could, but really listen to understand and to support them and enable them to achieve the things they wanted to. So a very enabling approach and drawing on the things that a good life, how a good life looked to them, their aspirations, their goals, how they'd manage things in the past and how they could draw on that a bit more when they were under stress or pressure. And also being very cognizant of... The, uh, the environment within which they lived, the relationships which they had with others, the support and the assets in their communities and how you linked them to that, how you were a boundary spanner and did all your networking. That was, to me, the heart of what social work practice is about. And I suppose once I got when I came into this post, and probably the last few years in practice, what I felt is that we drifted into a very process, transactional, procedural approach to social work in adults, uh, and that we that's where we were getting it wrong, really, because it wasn't going to really deliver what social work uniquely delivers, which is this very much professional use of self. Um, working very much alongside people with and by and from them to make the changes or achieve the things that people want for themselves. So that meant when I got into a position where I could influence more, I wanted to create that kind of... um, Action for Change, I suppose, where we got social workers in what is often a very procedural context, a local authority, to practice differently, to challenge the systems that they had become servants to, rather than serving the people they were working with. Uh, So we did a lot of work promoting it looking at and reintroducing the models of practice. Um, I commissioned, I think she's doing some work as part of this uh, this um, offer from Cardiff on um, uh, Professor Sam Barron and a colleague, uh, Tony Stanley, to work up a model of practice framework and then a practice handbook, which uh, two other colleagues, um, Tricia and Carmen uh, co-wrote based on this whole approach. Uh, so then we were able to publish that through the government uh, Department of Health. Uh, so that's out there for people to use. And we had previous to that done a big round table with lots of people from the sector, including service users or service user organisations or uh, personalisation leads from different places, uh, which very much you know consolidated this. And there are lots of people promoting this way of working with both community individuals, and trying to shift and leave a change in the way we work with people. Uh, So it's there. Lots of places have taken it on board and used particular models uh, which promote social strengths based, strength based work. Um, so, uh, using restorative practice or the three conversation model, uh, things like that. And clearly, more systemic approaches to working with families and individuals. Um, family group conferences are becoming more utilized within adult social care, particularly around safeguarding. Uh, now more around discharge, hospital discharge. Actually, that might be of interest to you. So I think we're we're sort of gaining traction, but often these things take years, don't they, to really turn around? And you're you're fighting against a system as well sometimes. But I do feel there's enough of it flagged or highlighted in the Care Act and the guidance that goes with it. The government have just published. Uh, a further paper called putting people at the heart of social care. And again, there's been a strong emphasis, which myself and colleagues from across the sector have been able to influence around the person, the I statements, looking at their strengths, looking at how you work with the outcomes that they want to achieve for themselves and how you support and enable them to do that. Uh, and trying to move away from that kind of very bureaucratic approach. So hopefully these things over time will help us to get back into a place where that is what social work is about.
1: Absolutely, that's fascinating. And I, I meant to say, and then we can do this bit out, but um, my professional doctorate, I am looking at strength-based approaches in social work. So oh, I'll, be, I'll be doing an ethno, ethnographic study following social workers around and looking at how they practice and where those strengths come out and where we might need to think about how we can support that further.
0: I yes, I mean, out. I'd be interested in that. It's like there's only so much you can do, isn't there, For giving – promoting it, writing about it, giving people frameworks, suggesting people they could get into the organization to help, If you in a sense, retrain people to be freed up, to work differently. Um, how you get that kind of change over time that where it is very much evidenced in everyday practice that everybody's doing. I'd be interested to know how, how we can take it further and faster actually, faster and further. Mm.
1: Absolutely, and obviously, the research that's been done around strength-based approaches, especially in the UK, is it gives us fairly livid- limited evidence for it working. Even mm. though we know it's the right
0: thing to do, um, mm. so I, I think. Obviously- I mean, the other thing we've been—I've a- been able to do—is because we have the National Institute for Health and Care Research in the department, and we did a big um, project on what are the top 10 questions we need to answer about adult social work or social work with adults. Mm -hmm. And from that, uh, one of the questions was, Uh, how effective is strengths-based social work practice. And of course, the literature reviews shown just that there's not enough evidence or research into it. So, we do now have some research projects funded to look at it. So, hopefully, as we build more research and evidence about what it is, where it's being applied, where it's effective, or what we need to do to make it more effective, uh, then that will be helpful. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So,
1: obviously, I'm, I've read the, the two literature reviews. And, um, one of the things um, I've looked at is some of the international stuff that around strength-based. And it's often not called strength-based approaches. It's called community assets or it's called, mm-hmm. you know, sort of working differently. And I, I mean, it's just fascinating, isn't it, about how we make social work about... Advocating and supporting people to do things differently rather than um, rationing services, which is essentially yeah. sort of the way that it's gone over since you started, I, I would guess. Um,
0: yes, I mean, I think that's partly government, the way government policies and legislation get played out, isn't it? And yeah. um, I think with the NHS and Community Care Act back in the 90s, when it became about care management and a model of. Yeah. That's, that's where it got all a bit distorted. Because I think prior to that, it was about how do you help somebody? What is it that's going to make a difference? And how do you negotiate all those tricky, murky areas of trying to get the support for somebody? But it got so... Got, it did get so much about rationing because that's what the NHS and Community Care Act was about at the end of the day, wasn't it? Yeah. But hopefully the Care Act has helped a bit. I think the struggle around eligibility will always be an issue, and that's a conundrum that I think we need to think about. How do we support and enable social workers, actually? And how do you use a strength-based approach? It's like with when you're working with people and communities, then there's when you're actually supervising and working with social workers or social care professionals. And then there's quality assurance. How do you take a more strength-based model and apply it to your quality assurance as well and your leadership, how leadership is modeled. So it's something you can look at uh, with all of those areas, isn't it? It's not just about what does social worker do and say when they go out there to visit somebody or be with somebody. So how do you do that with your how do you supervise in that way as well
1: mm. yeah absolutely and some of the sort of reading that I've done around um, my research you know has, has presented kind of the sort of political opposite that you know strength based approach is just this just sort of tool for trying to reduce the amount of support somebody needs and I just read that thing and I just think you don't get it you just mm. don't get it mm. <laughs> mm. Um, you know that uh, you know it's it's, it's the, you know communities aren't strong and people don't have good resources and I think it's just that's just so de- deficit-based, and it really doesn't reflect um, the way that we should be working with people and, and our role in their lives to try and mean that actually what they've got is a, is not a need for social work, ideally, in the long term, and mm.
0: to just be able to, to get on and live the most independent life. Yes, I suppose that's, very, that's probably the most contentious area, isn't it, that critique, mm. that it's just another neoliberal tool to... You know the whole big society, whatever you want to call it, but of course it's it's not. There's it's no way as taking a more strength based approach, kind of justification for not lobbying for proper funding and proper resources and proper pay for people working in social care to support people, proper recognition of the support that families need, which is beyond you know just playing to their strengths or working with their strengths, but they also need. Appropriate income security and opportunities to have support from respite or whatever it is to help them. Of course, those things go alongside this. It's not about undermining the need to campaign and lobby for and gather evidence to demonstrate the level of sustainable resourcing that's needed to support enabling people to draw on their gifts and strengths and abilities, rather than becoming a kind of gift relationship and a very dependency-oriented way of working with people. And I think that's partly what, that's that's a whole political legacy, isn't it, of the post-war settlement and what was that about and uh, my friend and colleague Hilary Cotton has a lot to say about that. That you know, the the kind of next stage of uh, beverage was never implemented. It was just about putting in place the welfare state, the NHS, um, and so on. And that that bit about building communities and then communities having the strength and capability to lead and solve many of the uh, problems or situations they come up against never quite got off the ground because we did create a sort of um, professional knows best or dependency time culture. Mm.
1: Yeah, and I mean that's in terms of my day-to-day work. It's something I come across all the time because I'm, obviously I'm based. I'm based on, in the hospital, and mm. the conversations I have with people around, you know, things like capacity assessments, you know, and people thinking, you know, you've not got capacity if you're not making the right decision by a mm. professional. You know, there's no insight to their care needs because they want to go home. Well, mm, not necessarily. Mm. <laughs> it Doesn't mean they've got. i have got access to. Uh, uh, insight into what they need, it means that actually, well, they want to go home. It's yeah, <laughs> a difference. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so, we do come across that every day. And I think you're right. I think it is about mainstreaming strengths in every level. Um, mm. So it's not just about frontline practitioners understanding strengths-based approaches. It's about people that um, manage them. It's about, you know, communities often do anyway, just by default, because they don't
0: do the politics stuff. <laughs> they often yes. do what works with people in their local area, or people that they work with. Hmm. And, I mean, just, it's you're so right. And if you don't, uh, you've got to try and have, if you're going to make it work, if it's going to really represent a sea change in how we practice. It's got to be the whole system from, you've got to have committed senior leaders and uh, people inspiring and supporting and enabling uh, their practitioners to do that, haven't you? You've got to have people who believe in it so they'll change the systems that people are required to work with, the way in which you, it's like the classic one is, when I've spoken to people about it, well, it's all very well saying that, Lynn, but we've got all these forms that we have to fill in that start with, you know, what the person can't do. So then it's about, well, if you're, you've got to get your directors and managers on board to change what people have to write down and how they write it down, how things are captured uh, right through to supporting them and around different conversations and giving them the freedom to do that and giving them the permission to make the decisions at a, profession, at a level of where they're working alongside people rather than this very... Uh, budget-oriented, control-oriented approach and metrics that maybe don't mean anything to anybody else apart from statisticians that sit somewhere. So that's absolutely key. It's impossible, it's so hard to do it otherwise. There are some fantastic social workers who manage it anyway, but that's not easy if you don't have the right support and systems in place. And then also, how you quality assure what you're doing. So, what, you know, what difference is it making to people's lives? And that's the true measure of things, not how many hours you've dished out or how many care home placements you've made, but what what tangible difference has engaging with and supporting somebody uh, to to have the outcome they want, what tangible difference has it made in terms of their mental health, their well-being, and obviously their safety and warmth and all those other things.
1: Yeah, I think part of the challenge is that there is a desire, scientific desire, for that to be numbers-based, and it's always going to be about what works for that individual person. It's always going to have to have that qualitative element. You know, how has it made a difference for me, my family, my next-door neighbour? You know, you know, rather than how many people reported that their lives were better. Well, if you've had a major incident in your life, it may not be better. But is it as has the input you've had helped you to manage where you are in your life and and can deal with that in the
0: best way possible for you yes absolutely and of course within that are all the other elements of great social work which is how you work with people's loss and change how you help them to process that to get to a position where they are managing that as well as they can and you know for them it's it's a loss but it's a change in how you adapt to a new way of being but as positively as you can all of those things are part of a more strengths based approach aren't they? Absolutely yeah I mean it's just another title isn't it For, and that's what sometimes social workers who've been around around a long time will say this is like going back to my roots of social work to what I believe social work to be this is this is old fashioned social work for want of a better term and of course it is so it's nothing it's not new it's just trying to get back to what what we were inspired to go into social work for in the first place isn't it and i think the political debate about social justice and human rights and is very much the heart of the strength space place of course it's not just about getting people to rely on the things they have available to them it is complemented by ensuring that the support that's there enhances and allows them to do that. And that must be right. People must have income security, a place to call home, a good environment to live in, opportunities to engage and con- contribute to their community, feeling valued and cared for. Um, and I think that's the even the kind of in terms of leadership that's what authentically you know I see now corporate across the corporate world this promotion of leading with the heart authentic leadership when you unpack it it's what we've tried to do in social work for years which is you know knowing what you're talking about having this knowledge skills and uh, experience so that people think they know what they're talking about secondly that they can trust you that openness, that transparency, that getting alongside of people. And thirdly, uh, that you care, that you do actually care about what's going on what happens and who cares about what's happening here and how do we garner the kind of resources and strengths that everybody has to support somebody. Um, Which is interesting, isn't it? That our way of being and seeing the world is now becoming more universal across Even the business world. Yeah.
1: No, you can see it. You can see the sort of the LinkedIn posts around, you know, don't ask your workers to come into the office, trust that they're doing what they're doing. You know, know, little things like that. You can just see that sort of idea that people just need to have the space and the thing to do the, the right things in the right mm. way. And, and the, you know, trust goes a long way to, to delivering a lot of that. And if that's the same sort of relationship, and you can make that relationship between, you know, the, um, service user or the customer or the, the I, I go with person generally, the person, <laughs> <laughs> the person um, that you're working with, then that then you're halfway there before you ever start in terms of that sort of that trust. Mm. And, um, getting getting the best outcomes for
0: people really yes that's right I mean I suppose um, it's that whole thing about you know this and we we are pushed into it aren't we the street level bureaucrat type social work practice where you are making decisions at the front line with people which are often about the agency and what the agency requires how you Tread that very delicate line between being there for the person to advocate, support, and enable, whilst also uh, being employed by the aid of the state and the requirements of the state, and that kind of more radical approach. Well, how do we push back in terms of what the state is doing and what the state should be doing? It is complex because. I mean, it's a very old notion of uh, social workers as street-level bureaucrats, um, where we're out there working on the front line with people and um, engaging in, you know, we're very privileged, aren't Aren't we? People bring us into their world, share things with us that, you know, it's amazing when people tell you their stories. It's quite um, a personal and intimate exchange. And we have to balance that very carefully with we're also there as agents of government, the state, and having to work within the constraints of that um, and how we then challenge within that uh, making decisions that support the person but also have to meet the requirements of our organisation. And especially when, and it's like that at the moment, isn't it, when we know there are undue pressures on people and society through the kind of lack of resources or lack of support in terms of income security. Those are the kind of complications. So, the ways and means test, to call it, you know, that social workers need to find ways and means of negotiating those choppy waters and doing the best they can within that. And I think that's one of the gifts that we have as strengths-based practitioners is that we can find ways in means sometimes which go beyond what's just on the menu of what the state provides. And that's really part of what's interesting about the job, isn't it? And keeps us going and gives you that sense of that you've made a difference to somebody's life, uh, which is why, we're do, why we do what we do. Um, So I think that's that's the element around the supervisory reflection. What difference did it make? Did it make any difference? What would you change if you were going to go back in there and have another sort of conversation? That reflection of what's your theory of change? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? So what has it really impacted in a positive way, both for the person, their family, uh, the way in which things work. I mean, you, you probably experience that in your setting in the hospital, do you?
1: Yeah, I do a lot. I and mean, one of the things we would talk, we've we talked a bit about quality assurance and one of the things that I've put in as well as a whole load of processes around discharge and how we get people sort of home rather than into, into residential nursing care. And that is an ongoing challenge in terms of that kind of risk aversion. Is to look at a quality assurance framework around discharge and look at how we can make sure that we are discharging people well and that that is a good experience for them. Um, and we're just updating the system policy and one of the things that the system policy is, is we're trying to put that strength-based stuff in so you know when you ha- make sure you have conversations make sure you have conversations with their family think about the three, you know, the three questions what's important to this person what's important for this person and what mm. do you to try and get them home and actually if you just boil it down to those three things you'll get most of it right most of the time well that's <laughs> you know? good yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. What, so what were they again so, so, what's, so- what's important to you Or hmm. to the person we're talking about what's important for them so what mm. does it they need to be able to to be able to, to um, live their lives? And how do you get that at home is are used for, for hospital? Because obviously there's so much focus on bed mm. bases and sort of you know, that um, idea that somebody's better off in a bed. Oh, you know, I see. The cultural, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. but in other settings, um, we'd use it for, you know, what's important to people, what's important for people, then how, how do you marry those two things together? So that would be the mm. sort of wider question mm. that I've kind of always tried to promote because I think that's the easiest way. People often struggle with well, what is strengths-based? Mm. What does it mean? What, does it, what do you mm. do? What, what is it? And it's mm. and I always think that you take that simple and build on it. That's kind of, that's always
0: been. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think one of the things that I'm keen on is in the quality assurance space, if I was somebody coming into quality assure practice, well, what evidence is there in the way things are written down, uh, whether there's evidence that something has been co-produced or co-designed with a person, for example, um, is well-being central, like things you said, what's important to them, for them. And I think the thing that maybe people struggle with a bit is around the safeguarding and proportionate risk element. And that's where your capacity and unwise decisions, as opposed to not being able to make, uh, not having the capacity to make a decision, yeah. how those those very finely balanced, this is what I want. And these these are the risks, that these will how I'll mitigate them. But this is a kind of um, positive risk approach to supporting people. So that people don't become over risk averse and over. I mean, that, that happens a lot in hospitals, doesn't it? Often medical teams will want to put in a lot more support than, than is needed because they're worried or more risk averse.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the things, uh, if you look at what's going on, because we've tried all sorts of things to, to see about how we could reduce the prescription of care in hospital. And I've sent up, you know, we've sent up social workers to do the work. And you know, it doesn't matter who you send, if you're looking at a person in a bed, You can only see them there. And Mm. the only way to to truly understand what people need is to take them home and assess them. Take them home and look at what's going on in their home at Mm. the time Mm. and then put the support in um, that they need and change that once they've settled back down. That's the the only way, really, of of Mm. doing that.
0: So a, do you think I mean they, we've got these discharged to assess yeah. programs as you know, there are still people who are sent from hospital to a care home aren't there to be assessed. and I yeah. wonder how well that allows them to be truly assessed in their I mean do we do are we doing them and not a favor by doing that.
1: I don't think we're doing people a favour. It's one mm. of my um, one of my drums to bang is stop sending people to curse and poems in the home, yeah. um, because the problem. And sending somebody to a residential care home is miles better than having them in a hospital ward for all the reasons. Mm. You know, good quality care mm. home provides really good quality care and support for somebody who needs that. But the bottom line is that person can't get up in the middle of the night naked and go and raid the fridge. They're not. It's not their home. It's not their environment. They, you know, they would be treated as if they were behaving badly if they did something like that. Whereas if that's what they did at home, it'd be fine. And I think there's a we you can make step-down beds work, but I think you have to have a really um, structured and formal model around it being into immediate care and being a view to get people home. Mm. And the problem is that resources just don't allow for for that, and, and that's where you've got your, your, your challenge. You've got to try and push for some of these things that you need to actually be able to support people um, in an environment where there's just not enough staff to deliver what you need, need to be delivered, mm. especially in the moment, you know, sort of last... Few months, the Omicron variant, mm. sort of staff shortages have been pretty dire. So the
0: um, the the difficulty with getting everybody back at home to do those assessments is not just not enough staff to provide yeah what, and I was having this conversation
1: with um the, the lead nurse of the team and who's actually really very strength-based in terms of that, the way she operates and she was saying Sarah what am I supposed to do when the ward are telling me that person's not going to be safe between care calls I can't send them home and mm. I'm thinking actually there's something there is something about that if you're being told by somebody that's caring for somebody they're not mm. going to be safe and how would and, they know that though well, that's that's their perception because they'll you know if they get up they might fall over or um, you know they don't mm. show any whilst well, person's hospital they don't show any. Uh, evidence that they're actually able to do anything for themselves because they're in a hospital bed a lot of the time. Yes I
0: see. Yeah. It's very difficult.
1: Um, So the discharge to assess model and the the very best model is that you take somebody home, you you have the the right professionals meeting them at home, whether they be therapy or enablement or social work, whatever it is you need, Mm. that you look at then at what that person needs. And if you Mm. can't meet it on that day, you return them either to hospital or to a bed while you put that in place. But Mm. at least you've got a really good understanding of what they need. Mm. and even if that person doesn't stay at home for you know this it's still inevitable they may need long-term residential or nursing care they've had that chance to say goodbye to adjust to you know they don't just leave their leave their home in an ambulance and never Mm. ever go back
0: Mm. I suppose that's that's the thing to promote isn't it it's there may be risks of falls between care calls but if the person has the capacity to make that decision that they'd rather try it and take that risk then we have to respect that and go with that and that's, yeah, maybe, that's maybe where the the kind of change yeah. lever can be and where that kind um, of that promoting that person's choice to have that go, even though it might not work.
1: Yeah, and working with families in that kind of strength-based way, especially I think because we are not able to do, and I'm talking generally now, preventative work in the way that would be beneficial in terms of such that you know the care act and the prevent reduce delay and the well being stuff. Actually, the reality is you only really see somebody when they're in crisis. By which stage their care has often been struggling on and managing for a very long time, and and is saying well actually no, we've got to have this, this, and this.
0: Hmm. Whereas
1: actually, if you could work with people and communities much earlier to make sure that people are supported, they could carry on having their lives without that level of again um, in interference really um, mm. much better stage. and especially you get it especially where families have moved away so when mm-hmm. you're working and you're working in areas where you know families aren't around the corner they've moved they live in other side of the country and they've got families of their own you know sort of grown-up sons and daughters who have because of their own families and actually what they want is the perception that mum or dad is safe without the realization that actually mm. that safeness they may have hmm. the, the safeness, it's, the best place to try and provide that is actually within their own environment that they know when they've lived in and it's set up in the way that works for them. Hmm.
0: So I suppose that's uh, interesting because I was talking to somebody recently who works in a big hospital or who's a non-exec director of a big hospital actually and they and they had found by introducing that family meeting around the discharge Decision that they were able to achieve a lot more in terms of people going home because families, when you use that more family group conference approach, and it's it, there's not there's a freedom where you're like, well, there's permission now for the family to think through what might be ways of supporting somebody so that they can have that their desire to go home met. That they managed to get people discharged in a lot, in a lot like I think they reduced uh, delays by up to two thirds by taking that approach, and more people went home, even though sometimes it was about the family agreeing a plan to support person for six weeks until other arrangements could be made. Uh, is about engaging with the strengths of the system and the family, isn't it? And sometimes I also had an example where two sisters hadn't spoken to each other for 20 years, haven't fallen out. But using that model yeah. and having a good uh, a good facilitator for that conversation, they both attended and they both agreed what they would do. And even though they still didn't speak to each other, really, they, it did mean that the, their mum was able to co- go home and and have uh, both the care, formally care-provided support, but also the family support in a different way that enabled her to be at home for a bit longer. So it's it's all that, isn't it? It's what what you know we all want in the end to feel we've got some control over being in our own homes but we know we need support but we don't want to feel we're a burden so therefore we must just go along with being miserable somewhere it's the whole you know mental capacity stuff isn't it you know what's, what's the point of making somebody safe if they're miserable? Absolutely and
1: that best interest stuff you know the best interest stuff still has to take into account what that person's saying even that person really doesn't have a clue what they're saying mm. so they take it into mm. account you know and mm. and bear that you know bear that mind about what, they, what they're saying they want and what they would have said they wanted, you know, from what their family and friends are telling you, what they would have said if they were able to articulate that in in the way that
0: they would have been like to. Yes, and interestingly, the the legislation is all there to give you that framework. The Mental Capacity Act, uh, deprivation of liberty safeguards or liberty protection safeguards as they will become, Um, the Care Act itself, the Human Rights Act. You know, all of the things are there to give you that permission, aren't they? To be operating in that way, and there's so much call to action from people—people with lived experience—who say, "What we want is a place to call home, people we love around us, friends and family, doing something that matters to us." The permission, you know, the the agency to take the risks we want to take. We're, We're sort of we're a bit behind the times if we don't sort of get into that space aren't we and that, that is what people want we are and we provide an um, a mm. old
1: fashioned and outdated menu of options for people you know we provide very traditional home care I know there are some really good models of home care in, in some areas that you know kind of based on the birth model and stuff but mm. we, we provide very much a you know three calls four calls a day type model for, of home care mm. or residential care you know and, yeah. and it you know that's, and that's the same. I've worked in a lot of different places, and that tends to be sort of central. And then you might pilot something slightly different, but then think, well, we can't really roll that out because it's not going to work for this, 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 and this reason. Mm. And, and actually what we do is offer people a very traditional model of service that isn't... But people don't know what they need because they've never been in that space either. So it's difficult to get that kind of balance of, of how you can mm. change what the, which is operating
0: the, is. Yeah, which is why the kind of... What's a good life look like to you? What have you tried in the past? How would you know? You you know, what would a good day look like? Can you describe it to me? Which gives a sense of what are the things that would make them feel happy and supported um, in the environment they want to be in, all of those ways of of asking those questions, having those conversations, having those open discussions will help to support and lead them to options and more creative options, which is what everybody's looking for all the time, aren't they? Which is why it's interesting to go back to some of the, you know, systemic family therapy approaches which were very much about people are the experts in their own lives you're there to collaborate as a professional and to work with them and that stories are central uh, to people's lives so how you create opportunities or limit opportunities will be about the story the narrative approach and that sort of narrative therapy i think became um, quite um, advanced in terms of fa- working with families. But I think there's an opportunity to use that in adults, working with adults as well. Yeah, uh, because they create the opportunities for change and that people can reframe and change their story in their life. And we're there to collaborate in the process, not to define it. And that the challenges or problems are separate from people and their relationships uh, and the relationships between people and their problems can change. And I, I think that kind of getting away from that, somehow it's a pathological internal issue. It's all to do with what goes on between spaces, isn't it? And how you can reframe a different
1: story. Absolutely. If you go right back to sort of the early sort of strength-based work, the sort of Selby stuff, you know, one of the, the other key things he said was, these people have, they're, they're, have, have survived. These are survivors. <laughs> they have been through horrendous mm. experiences. They've got significant mental health challenges and trauma, and yet they're here and they're surviving. So they're mm. very strong mm. because they're mm. still here. Um, and if you start from that basis for the people that who are the, have got the most going on, they actually should be able to apply that to anybody in any set circumstances. Some yeah. the basis, this person is strong. This person is still here. They're still alive. Mm, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and if you start from that basis and kind of – and I know it's things have moved on in terms of the how and the what and all the rest of it, but those very early sort of theoretical frameworks around strength-based approaches
0: actually mm. still stand. Yes, no, I agree. It's very interesting, isn't it? Um, everybody gets very anxious, don't they, about – coming across people who maybe are hoarders, living in a hoarder and squalor type situations and just absolutely panicking. You think they've been there for 80 years and they've sort of still pottering along in their own way. And it's about building on that rather than um, thinking you have to sort it all out and work it all out and, you know. Absolutely, and
1: there's something about stuff. We all have too much stuff. Mm. And that's a relatively new phenomenon because people didn't have things in the sort of, you know, in the past, they didn't have lots of, of stuff, but we all have stuff. We all build stuff. So actually mm. we're all going to become hoarders. Who knows Not I me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a minimalist. <laughs> Too much traveling about. Of, I can't remember the name of that sort of um, guru that says if you, it doesn't give you joy, throw it away. But, you know, th- it's not surprising that lots of, Particularly poor people live in environments that are very overcrowded and cluttered, <laughs> yeah. and we judge people for it. And we judge people mm. because the houses aren't as clean as we think they might should be for people where their eyesight isn't particularly good anymore. don't <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember my mother-in-law having a cataract operation. She went, "Oh my goodness, why didn't you tell me the kitchen was this grubby?" <laughs> <laughs> because like, I thought, you well, might like we, that. Should, <laughs> yeah,
0: we shouldn't have cataract operations." <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I I suppose that's why it's so important, isn't it? And I hope people listening to this podcast will think about themselves and their role as practice leaders, whether they are frontline social workers or whether they are directors of adult social care or... NHS Trust or whatever that um, it's really important to frame this and support it and to give social workers the freedom to do things differently uh, and not be driven by their paperwork and processes And to use the expertise of social workers and people to design how things could be captured. Uh, So co-producing that so it doesn't become a burden, but it supports and enables practice. And really trusting the skills, knowledge, and judgment of both your practitioners and the people you work with. As, As we've just said, they've got this far with amazing kind of strength and resilience. And while some of the things might be fraying a bit. It's about how you build on that uh, innate strength and experience I've had to to get the change they, they can see would give them the life that they want to lead. Um, so people just want a little bit of help sometimes, don't they? They don't want to be taken over or agency to be taken away from them. Um, And I I had a a personal experience recently of caring for my mother who was in the last year of her life. And even at the very end, she was very clear she was going to stay in her home no matter what. And also that she had got to her 84 years and uh, that was because she... She did, she had done this, that and the other thing. And uh, she wanted acknowledgement for her strengths and gifts and what she'd achieved. And that was still very important to her right till the end. And it's important to all of us, isn't it? We don't want to be seen as a problem or a difficulty or a burden. We want to be seen as a gift, somebody who is a value and has made a difference uh, to to the people around them so important. I think thinking about that strengths-based approach at end of life and palliative care as well is really important. How we reframe working with people um, and make that a positive experience based on those more strengths-based approaches and conversations is key too. Absolutely,
1: because I remember my my mum died of cancer. So you know, I and she was only sixty-four. So I've I've been to that kind of end of life experience as well, and and everything goes with it. But I remember one of the things that she said to me was, "I don't feel any different at sixty-four than I did at forty-four or at thirty-four or twenty-four. I'm still me. I'm still exactly the same person that I was." I just mm. I might look a bit different, I might be more I might be failure you know and, and pain and all those things that go with with that, but mm. you're still inside it you're the same person, yes,
0: that's right and so, I mean it's interesting now that um we're starting to look more at introducing or ensuring that something like um <clears throat> music is in somebody's care and support plan, for example, when particularly with people with dementia or cognitive. Uh, impairments when there's so much evidence now to the difference that music makes to their well-being and the way in which it can key into emotions and who they are and how important that can be in helping around a plan that works for them because it does give them a sense of and triggers those emotions and experiences that matter to them and also helps with their feeling better in where they are and that's another way of thinking about how you how you really key into what are the gifts and strengths and things that people that matter to people so those memories and emotions and experiences matter don't they because it gives them a sense of what their life was or is still, in fact. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of ways you can frame this, isn't there? And it goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is be starting where the person is, being with them, really listening to understand, really, really properly exercising empathy, both cognitive and emotional empathy, and understanding the difference between that. Uh, in order to enable and support the person to have what to them is going to be a good life for them. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. This has been fascinating, then. Yeah. so much. Well, thank you for that, Lynn. That has been incredibly interesting. And I've learned some things about strength-based approaches that I thought I knew and it just challenges to have a little bit of a think differently about something so that's been absolutely fascinating Um, and thank you for taking time to uh, join us here today on this podcast well thank
0: you sir and thanks for being in the conversation with me because it helped me think things through too and uh, it was really interesting to hear about your experience particularly in the hospitals and the whole discharge process and it gives me some food for thought to go back and think about what else i can do about that but i do hope people enjoy the podcast and obviously happy for people to get in touch if there's anything else they want to talk about great thanks lynn thank you Thank you for listening to Cascade Talks.
1: We'd
0: like to thank Health and Care Research Wales and the Welsh Assembly Government for their funding support. Exchange brings together leading researchers with practitioners and service users to share expertise, research evidence and care experiences. To sign up for free events and access resources, visit exchangewales.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Exchange Wales.